Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. There's a phrase that we use a lot in journalism to describe the people who actually see the world up close. We call it the front line. And yes, we apply it to war and to violence, but also to lots of other places and jobs where we see people really facing life in all of its horror and all of its glory up close. Nurses, doctors, teachers, police. And the episode that we're bringing you today is about as powerful an example of someone who has spent their life, their career, on the front line as I can think of. Claire McHenry served 30 years as a police officer from 1989 to 2019. She was the most senior woman in Lancashire Police Force in the northwest of England. And with that seniority came exposure to the best and worst of life, but also to the best and worst of the police, an institution that has, over the last few years, fallen from scandal to scandal, particularly for its attitude towards women and minorities. And this year, Claire decided that it was time to tell her story. And so she started writing. In this episode, you'll hear Claire and I talking, and you'll hear her reading extracts from an essay that she's written for the Tortoise Quarterly, our short book of long reads. A soft landing. I'm standing outside a house. The report said relatives had been unable to reach the occupant and they were concerned. We were short-staffed, as always, so I, still a probationer, am here alone again naturally to investigate. I check with the neighbours. They haven't seen our man for weeks. Bottles of milk are souring on his doorstep. I think he might have just done a flit. So I push open the letterbox. Mel's piled up on the floor inside. Then a terrible smell wafts out. When I finish retching, the call operator, kindly but firmly, suggests I check for a point of entry. So I find an open window at the back. It's high, but it's reachable. Great, I think. Now I'm a real cop and I'm on a mission. A proper investigation. Now it isn't easy getting through that window. It's not that I'm unfit or anything. The fun runs at Bruce Police Training Centre have certainly seen to that. It's all the kit I'm carrying. Radios, a truncheon, well, if you can call it that. The woman's truncheon is the size of an Ann Summers vibrator and it won't stop a rat in its tracks. 
a belt, and, and I've got pocketbooks. But eventually, I squeeze and I sliver headfirst through the tiny space. It's dark inside. Then I realise I'm caught on the window latch, and I find myself helpless, dangling upside down. I can hear my pants ripping as I wriggle. Then something gives and I plunge down onto something soft. Well, that's lucky, I think, groping in the dark. There's a tiny amount of light coming through. I seem to have ripped the curtains along with my uniform as I fell. At least I'm the right way up now. My head's clearing. That terrible smell, it's, it's still knocking me out, though. What is it? My eyes are growing accustomed to the half-light. I can make out a blank TV. And I appear to have landed on a sofa chair. Not the comfiest, but at least I'm unhurt. I reach out for my radio mic. It's gone astray somewhere in the fall. There's something cold under my hand, which is a bit odd, as it's sweltering in here. I look closer. It's a hand. I've landed on a dead man. I'm up and I'm across the room. My whole body is seized with fear. But what am I frightened of? I don't know, but every horror film I've ever seen, every nightmare I've ever had seems suddenly made real. I can't take my eyes off sofa guy. He's an old man. Lucky for him, he's long dead, I think, or my fall on his lap might have killed him. He looks, well, cold and leathery and, and grey. I venture forward. His eyes are open. The blue, I notice, but glazed over. I try to do what I've seen done in the films and close them, but that doesn't work, and it seems disrespectful, so I stop. I start checking the sideboard drawers for identification. And my curiosity about this man begins to get the better of my fear. I find picture after picture of him smiling and, and laughing with his family. Here is Sofa Guy with grandchildren on his knee. Sofa Guy eating an ice cream with someone who, I guess, must have been his wife. I look over at him again. Suddenly, I feel a wave of compassion. I tentatively pat his hand and apologise for my ungraceful entry. I tell him I hope he's in heaven or wherever they go. And so ended my first encounter with death. It was by no means my last. So you've shared this remarkable story with us at Tortoise. Tell me where it starts like who were you where were you what were you doing before you joined the force well just before I was probably um I was in a fortunate position I had a lovely family lots of friends uh, good upbringing enjoyed life lived on a farm and we uh, um, there was beef cattle in a, a horse farm so I had lots of ponies uh, where was that uh, in Reed in Lancashire yeah so I had lots of um horsey experiences and pony club camp and things like that and, and enjoyed it very much and and life was good yeah I left school uh, went to work uh, 
as a beauty therapist and a hairdresser, as an absolutely appalling hairdresser, but somehow managed to get through. Went to work in Manchester for a year and cosmetics and then somehow ended up in the police. (laughs) And when you were back then at that age, like what was your vision for what you wanted to do in life or what what did you imagine your life was going to be like? My vision at that time was um, having a good time. At one point, I think I wanted to be um, body beautiful competitions and all sorts like that. And then I got several jobs, um, one of which was working for a hypnotist on stage in a little sparkly number, walking about on the stage. So my life was probably going perhaps down a wrong route at that stage, but I was enjoying myself immensely. So, And so then how did that kind of carefree, happy, vivacious young woman end up joining the police? Well, I would have carried on being carefree. I think probably at this stage, uh, I think my mum intervened at some point and I think uh, there was a concoction made up between my mum and dad that times needed to get a little bit more serious. And uh, unbeknown to me, my mum filled out an application for the police for me, um, which was a bit of a shock at the time. But uh, something that I thought, well, actually... I like a challenge and I knew there was a fitness test to get in and I thought, oh, great opportunity. You know, this is as far as my mind was going. Um, So I went along with the process and got through to the final interview, uh, which didn't go exactly to plan and I didn't think I was going to get in. What what happened? Well, by the skin of my teeth, I think I got in. So here I was sat at the interview um, and for once I got to the stage of the process where I thought, well, take the makeup off, tie the hair back look a bit, you know, like you've got, you're educated and you're a nice lady. And I did my best through the interview. I told them that daddy had a company and I, I went to private school. I tried my very best with my Lancashire accent to be posh. Um, unbeknown to me, they wanted people at that stage who had lived a bit, which actually would have been better going in as myself. So at one point they said to me, Miss Miss Holbrook, as I was then, I don't think you've ever met a drunk man in your life, have you? How are you going to ever cope? At which point I thought, well, I've lost the interview, so I may as well have a bit of fun. And I said, actually, I've been a hypnotist assistant. I've been a singing telegram in the past uh, 12 months. And believe you me, I've met more drunk men than you've ever met in your life. Oh, can you wait outside, Miss Holbrook? So I thought, well, that's it now. This pompous tool, excuse language, is not going to let me in. So I stood outside and I was waiting to go. Uh, I was aware that my mum was sat in the car with her worried look on her face and I thought, I don't really want to walk out the door. So I I hovered a little bit and uh, to my surprise, they came out and said, for your cheek, Miss Holbrook, you have gained a place in the Lancashire Constabulary. Wow. And how old were you then? I was 20, 21 when I went to training. You must have been, I mean, what we know now about the police, it's not great with women, it's not great with, you know, minorities. Back then, what did it feel like to be a woman on the beat? Not just just out on the streets and doing your job, but also within the police. Yeah, there was was a lot of misogyny. It was um, a really tough place to be a woman. Um, Not particularly on my team, when you're in a team, suddenly you give your life for those people and the camaraderie that comes from that is amazing. But there was a lot of misogyny. There was some bullying along the way. You know, I was in for 30 years. Uh, there was quite a bit of bullying. Mainly it's competition. 
people will tread on you to get higher. Um, they would, you know, it, it was, you know, it, it could be a really difficult place. But I mean, the things that we had to do then were, you know, unbelievable, really. The uh, the truncheon we had was about the length of my hand, you know, it, it wouldn't have stopped any criminal. Mm. We had skirts, we couldn't wear trousers. We'll try fighting with a criminal with a skirt on, you know, nobody's interested in whether you get the handcuffs on, <laughs> you know, with your skirt over your head. So uh, there was there was a lot of uh, of competition and misogyny along the way yeah. in the early days. And how did you, coming from this kind of carefree, fun-loving background, presumably the, the situations that you were then put in as your career developed mm. were really serious, really difficult, challenging. Talk to me about how you you know, coped with those? How did you absorb them? How did you process them? I think as the process takes a long time um, and it's, you know, the, dealing with death, for example, is such um, a difficult step to take when your life's been carefree and you've never lost a family member. Um, death is difficult for anybody, whether they're in the police or not. Um, and there's death that's close to you and there's death that's you're dealing with professionally and you still see the grief and the tragedy around you and you still have to um you have to grow up fast and how do you reconcile those two sides of life because you know you're seeing this sort of like you said this grimy underside of of life that most people yeah. don't see but you're also living your own life a normal life how, how do you hold both of those realities in your mind yeah I think um, as I went through the ranks as, as a, at the higher ranks it's quite isolating actually because you're making big decisions on which are life and death on on occasion um, and the management of criminals that can cause deaths and serious injury to people and you do separate it out certainly I did I tried not to take it all home um a lot of it's confidential anyway, the higher up you get. And so there is almost a, a, a that life and a this life. And it's not always easy. I've lost partners over it. It's not easy planning an interview for a murderer and then going home and making tea. You know, it's not easy dealing with a child death all day and coming home and walking the dogs, you know. But you find your way through that. And if you can't find your way through that, then, you know, you've got to change that part of your career and do something different because a lot of police officers see the tragedy as their tragedy. It's not their tragedy. I emphasise a great deal with the parents of a dead child, but it's their tragedy and it's it's their tragedy in their box and I've got to deal with it as such. So death is a theme of your career. Unfortunately, I think I would imagine it is for quite a lot of officers. But yeah. Yes, uh, you know, the, the dealing with uh, sudden death is certainly something that was quite prevalent. I did quite a lot of years doing hostage negotiation and suicide intervention. So that's where you called out to people, um, often on rooftops, and uh, try to talk them away from their choice to throw themselves off so that was something that I did for so I suppose that was um you could almost say it was a little bit of a balance where you try to stop the death before it happens yes. 
And there's a particular incident that you've um, written about involving a man called Stuart. Yeah. Tell me about that story and how it fits into the bigger kind of yeah, story the, of your I mean, career. The story of Stuart is, to me, it's really important because I want to try and get across to people, we all judge people, don't we? The dark. I've changed the names of people and places to protect the innocent and the guilty. I first met Stuart in the 1980s at a domestic, a fallout between a couple, often resulting in domestic abuse, usually suffered by the female. We treated these victims shamefully. You could have a head blown up like a football, closed and swollen eyes, but so long as you sign my pocketbook to say you accidentally fell down the stairs, I'd walk right on by. How despicable. How conditioned I was to follow the lead I was given. No complaint, no job, no paperwork. And that was that. We had no concept of the cycle of abuse. How victims lose all the self-esteem and the confidence and the hope and believe they must stay in situ. We'd no idea of the almost palpable fear that victims faced in raising a complaint. A decision that could be a death sentence. We didn't see that the courts would see them as the abandoner and the liar. Perhaps I should say... I didn't see things. Maybe others did. I wonder when it was that my moral compass swung me round at last and I saw this for what it was. I'm just glad it did and that rising through the ranks, I could influence that culture. I'm proud that we learnt to do better. I'm sitting with Stuart, must be about 40 now, on a grotty bit of carpet in his miserable flat. My knees ache as I get down to sit beside him. That's what the years and late call-outs will do. My allergy twitches as the cat hairs catch on my on-call overcoat and the smell of damp, it hits me hard. The blue light of a cop car outside illuminates the dark room and intermittently reveals deep lines on his face, every second or so, as it penetrates the frost on that cracked lounge window. I first met Stuart long ago. He was young then, perhaps seven. He was sitting on the stairs listening to the commotion, looking bored and craning on the walls. His eyes were dead, and when he finally looked up, I could almost see the fleas in his matted and filthy hair. Nothing new here for him. 3am police call, a few marthings smashed. Furniture and his mum broken again. Oh, and his dad smashed too, in a different way, in his usual way. I met Stuart again in his teens, horribly thin with red welts all over his face. Glue sniffing or, or was it butane? Grotty little urchin. I saw him often after that. Usually he was under arrest. Thieving, 
fighting, thieving, stealing from cars, more thieving. I saw him often in the custody office between juvenile detention centres and then prison. Sometimes, on release, he looked briefly better. I barely recognised him when he had a bit of meat on his bones. While he was inside, he ate better than at any other time in his life. But it never lasted. The dealers, with their own desperate needs, soon got their freebies into him. No room for compassion for an addict when the dealer's a 300-a-day habit himself. Stuart's addiction, like many before and after him, was soon out of hand. He started grafting harder than ever. Commercial breaks, burglaries, now. He'd probably never worked so hard. He started taking risks to avoid the piercing agony of withdrawal. I once saw him, writhing in agony on the custody office floor in the grip of cold turkey. I can't easily describe the horror of watching someone in this state, even if relief is instant when the doctor gives them a tiny thimble of greeny-blue methadone. No wonder an addict will drag an old deer to the floor for a purse. Once, I went to Stuart's stinking flat as I'd received a tip-off about a power tool job, a burglary. Neither Stuart nor his woman, let's call her Gabby, noticed us kick the door in. They were both off the faces and unconscious, needles still in their arms, tourniquets still in place. There was a lot of HIV about then, and hep C. This sneaky sod used to put used needles in his sock drawer to catch the cops out when we were searching his place. Gabby had been pretty once. She was blonde and petite. Now she was a smackhead, as we called heroin addicts, with filthy hair and gaps in her teeth, and no stranger to fighting the cops if the mood took her. She and Stuart had a son, a little boy, a mini Stuart the type you saw the pet dog half-starved itself trying to eat out of the child's nappy as he learnt to crawl. We took that little boy away, but social care returned him to his parents soon enough. Still, to help, Stuart and his little family were moved to a brand new council house. By now they knew me. They didn't like me, of course, I was a cop, but they thought I might be one of the fairer ones. I told them how pleased I was that they had a chance of a new start. And it looked happy. But when I visited a few weeks later, Stuart was sitting cross-legged in the middle of the lounge. He was working on a car engine. There was black oil everywhere, all over that brand new pink carpet. And as I watched, the little one, looking bored, crayoned on the walls just as his father had done so many years before. A few months on, and the drugs were eating them alive. I knew then that that child should not be left with them any longer. I couldn't help myself. I was regularly coming by and just happening to look through the window. One day I peered in and saw both adults out cold. I walked in, and I carried out that little boy, vowing 
I'd never let anybody return him to Stuart's care. So now I'm sitting next to Stuart on the floor, comparing our lives by that flashing blue light. It's like looking through the looking glass, Stuart. My life versus yours. My privilege against the prejudice you don't even realise pervades your world. My entitlement against your ineligibility. I'm a sightseer invading your life intermittently before retreating back to my cushioned, protected life. You never had a chance. I had every chance. From a distance, we might look as if we're just sitting here reminiscing as two old friends. But this time, Stuart's not off his face. He's not thieving. He's not shooting up. And he's not going cold turkey. He's not even playing with a car engine. Stuart's dead. And I'm here to check it's not a suspicious death. And there is nothing suspicious. Just hopeless. Bloody hopeless. He's gone. Not even a ripple. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Stuart is, is, is somebody who had no chance in life. He didn't have a chance from the age of three. You know, there was not a chance for him. So it's, it's, for me, it's so important to get that across to people, that how dare we, how dare we judge? And I, I include myself in that. That's an important thing for me to, to come out of this, is please think before you judge somebody. We have every chance. A lot of people have no chance. 
And are there other stories like Stuart's that have stayed with you that, that you feel you can draw those sorts of lessons from? When I first joined the police, so a lot of the things I'm talking about have been so professionalised now. When I first joined the police, the, the criminals out there were the uh, uh, awful word. You know, they used to call them scrotes. You know, they, those are the law lives. The, you know, it was us and them. Uh, we were the good guys. They were the nobodies, the, the absolute dirt on your shoe, you know. And, and I worked on my first beat... And I, I'd been working in this police station where everybody was competitive and fighting against each other and there was backbiting and misogyny. And I'd go on my beat and they said it was a really quite a rough beat. But I went there and everybody's, everybody I met was real. You know, there was not one person. If they were mad, you'd know they were mad. If they were angry, they'd come shouting at you. If they were upset, the ball their eyes out. You know, that's kind of, there's, there's something where you've let go in life, where that happens, where you are so real. Um, you knew what you got. So for me, I felt more comfortable out there than in the police station. You can understand why police feel that they're in a gang, you know, <laughs> that because they they feel like they see that up front. They they have to touch that you know they they can't ignore that and so tell me like you know this remarkable 30 year career when did it feel like the moment to stop um i was fortunate to be on the pension scheme that finishes at 30 years so at 30 years you were expected to leave and um you know i was ready to go i dealt with a lot of death stared death in the face a lot um dealt with a lot of abuse I was a MAPA chair, which is a multi-agency public protection chair. So I was dealing with the worst of criminality and making decisions on how to manage them as they came out of the prison estate or um, psychiatric units. And these were murderers. These were um, serial rapists and child abusers. Um, and, and it's difficult managing those people for a long time. It's, uh, you know, I think I was tired, actually. I was getting tired. Hmm. Um and so it was a good time for me to leave. And then it opened up this new chapter yeah. to your life, which, you know, maybe to some people would feel like quite a right-hand turn, but then all the things that we've talked about, yeah. I actually can see how it might feel like a bit of a continuum. So yeah. tell me, what, what, where did you go next? Yeah, so now, <laughs> drum roll, um, I'm training to be a priest in the Church of England, which is a bit of a change, um, and it's marvellous, and it's uh, it's it fills me with joy. I'm studying and uh, at theology college, and um, I should be ordained this time next year, if all goes well, and if God's um, plans pan out I, I hope I believe I had a conversion experience which is very exciting um I didn't know it was called that of course that's what the Church of England have told me it was called um yeah it wasn't a a Paul on the road to Damascus moment it wasn't a, a blinding light or anything like that but um it was certainly a spiritual experience where somehow it all just made sense um you know so if you look at Stuart's uh, life, he died without a ripple. Nobody really cared that he died. I don't think anything changed. You know, and I saw that time and time and time again. And 
suddenly there was some sense to it. Um, there was a light, a light and a sense and a, a lightness. Um, and I knew it was a spiritual experience. And I just realised that they were loved. These people were loved. Um, maybe not in this life, but they were cherished and they were loved. So uh, I knew my life had to change, which was um, a bit disappointing at the time, in fairness, because I was planning, um, I got lots of lucrative offers for work. It turns out uh, the world on catch-up needed safeguarders and risk assessors, Um and uh, quite a lot of lucrative offers. I was planning on spending a lot of time in Turkey with my uh, long-suffering husband, but I knew that that wasn't going to be, uh, so to speak. So I knew that I wanted to turn the blessings that I've had in my life back into the world as best I could. It sounds really cheesy, but love is the way, you know. Um, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And if you think about, you know, the lives that I've watched uh, the lives I've been involved in um, the criminality I've dealt with the death I've dealt with you know there has to be a better way there has to be something else and this might feel like an impossible question to answer and maybe it is but do you think that you would have arrived at religion or arrived at faith actually not religion but faith had you not had the career and the experiences as a police officer do you think that it yeah. Took you to that place. <laughs> uh, I think that at the time I was pretty furious with God for doing this and disrupting my retirement. Um, and why would you do it in my 50s? And why didn't you do it in my 20s? Why now? Why do I want to stick? Do you know how long priests work? I could be working at 90. You know, this is not the plan. This is not the plan. Um, so, yes, of course. Um, I think I've reconciled myself with the fact that um, I can take a lot of those experiences forward. Um, I can understand uh, a lot of pain and suffering, um, you know, and, and things like that. And actually, funnily enough, <laughs> um, my training, a lot of it was in safeguarding. And when I was confirmed, the day after I got a phone call from the Church of England saying, are you that retired superintendent who's could we hire you to check safeguarding in the Church of England to identify uh, abuse in the past that we've missed or can you advise us on how to prevent harm in the church because clearly we want to eradicate it. And so I did talk to the church. I did do that for two years. It was no holds barred. Whoever you are, Claire McHenry, here is the keys to the files. Go through everything. So maybe policing and the priesthood aren't quite as far apart as you might first think. Both deal with life and a lot of death, with hope and despair. And Claire, from her decades on the front line, well, she might be just the kind of guide you'd want. I've been doing a lot of services and assisting at services and some preaching. Who would have thought? Um, which is absolutely marvellous. You know, I'm loving it. It's 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 a real privilege and uh, it, it's lovely to um, to work for Jesus Christ. There you go. Very so, different yeah, kind of very boss. Very different. <laughs> different boss. Different boss altogether. Well, I look forward to hearing the news that you have been ordained and you Thank are you. now living your new the beginning. I don't know what happened to Gabby, but I fear the worst. 
I wish I could tell her and Stuart something. I want them to know that her mum raised that little boy, mini Stuart. I want them to know that he's thrived. I want them to know that I watched as that little boy walked past my office window, hand in hand with his grandmother on his way to school. I want them to know how I felt years later, seeing him in his smart school uniform, fooling around with his pals waiting for the school bus. I want them to know how I felt when I saw a trendy young teenager walking through the town hand in hand with a really pretty young girl. I want them to know that fetching him from that terrible home was the best thing I ever did in 30 years of policing. My story started with a child on a slab. It ends with a boy whose life is just beginning. Like mine. This story was written by Claire McHenry for The Tortoise Quarterly, our short book of long reads. The producers were Immy Harper and Patricia Clark. The sound design was by Carla Patella, and the editors were Keith Blackmore and Matt Russell. Tortoise. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com.